Nehemiah chapter 5. Matt, if you could read for us. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and daughters, we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children. Yet we are foisting our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his own brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers so that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain, Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. And they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise, so that he may be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the twentieth year to the thirty-second year of Artaxerxes the king, twelve years... Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration forty shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work." Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O God, all that I have done for this people." Seated. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word, your word that instructs us, your word that pierces to our hearts. God, your word that gives us life. God, thank you for Jesus, who is the greater Nehemiah. Thank you, God, that you care about the oppressed. You care about those who are downcast. You care about the poor. You care about those who are enslaved. And thank you, God, you do something about it. God, I pray that we would respond to your word today. God, I pray for me as I preach that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit, enable me to preach your words. And Father, I pray for each and every person here, we need you to be able to hear. So God, right now, we just ask you, Lord, would you enable us to hear from you? Would you enable us to respond to you? And would you enable us to live for you because of Christ? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this passage that we just read from, it ends on a kind of a a somber note, like the whole book of Nehemiah ends on a somber note with Nehemiah praying that God would remember him. And so the passage kind of ends in this, Nehemiah, God, would you remember me? Now, this week, 
we all have to remember something else. It's not, it's a little somber, I guess. It's um, this week on Tuesday, in case you don't know, if you're an American, you have taxes that are due. Um, I know everybody just went silent and they just introduced panic into the room. Um, I don't want to show a hands, but how many people have not yet done their taxes? Go ahead and put your hand up if you want to. Come on, come on, at least, come on, at least one person in the room. It, it's, a, it's a time when you're forced to remember uh, the tax season. You remember how much you've given um, unwillingly sometimes to the government. You remember, though, what you spent your money on. You remember what, where all your money has gone. You go through all your receipts and, and maybe you itemize and your, all your deductions and you go through those things and you remember, hey, where did I spend my money this year? What did I do with what God had given me? How was I a steward of what he had given to me? And it's a good season actually for reflection. It's a good season for remembering. And, and the reason I mention it is, is not only is it tax season this Tuesday, but this last week I had the privilege although I didn't think of it as a privilege to begin with, I had the privilege of helping an older gentleman with his taxes. He, he didn't know how to do them. He, he couldn't figure them out on his own. He's retiree, and he asked for help. And I was thinking through, sure, okay, I'll help him. I'll, I'll do the Christian thing. I'll do the kind thing. I'll, I'll help him out a little. And, and so I helped him with his taxes. And if you know, doing your own taxes is no fun. Well, doing somebody else's taxes isn't any more fun. I mean, unless you're an accountant here, and and I apologize for you. I I don't understand. I can't relate how you enjoy doing taxes, but that's good. We need people like that. We need all gifts in the church. Well, I got to go through his taxes, and um, this is a a man who, by the way, he's not in this church, so you don't have to worry about it and figure out who is this guy that Matt's talking about. Um, He's not in the church. He's somebody who can come across as sometimes as as hard or, or callous and sometimes come across as uncaring, this external kind of mood that he puts off, this vibe that he puts off. Anybody ever know anybody else like that, by the way? No? Nobody else know anybody who can come across as hard or difficult? Well, this guy, he's, he's up in age. You know, you can't, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, right? So he comes across that way, but he's been softening in his latter years. And, and as I was going through things, we got to the part on, on personal deductions, and he gave me a stack. Uh, we actually about 90 different entries for charitable giving, and I was shocked. I shouldn't have been shocked, right? I judged somebody by externalities. I judged somebody by how they came across. And, and I was surprised of, boy, this, this person was extremely generous. Now, at, at first, my, I, had a, I had a kind of a wrong way of thinking about things and went wrong way of thinking about how I handle money and how he was handling his money. And I thought, wow, boy, he, he's given to a lot of different people. He's not really, not really managing his money very well. And then I realized as we went through this list of all the different charities and groups that he was giving to, they were all, or... or 90% of them were, were besides his, his church and local church, they were all towards people who were oppressed. They were boys and girls clubs. There was Native Americans. There was all kinds of, uh, all kinds of gifts to, and none of them were huge, but all of them amounted up to, up to a big amount of money. You know, this is a guy who's retired. He doesn't have much income. He, he worked last year part-time to, to help make ends meet, and yet... When we got finished doing things, I was struck by something. On top of his giving to his local church, which he did faithfully, and I thought, well, he's a Christian. He's always known better. And, and you're, when you're over 70, you know, you were taught that Christians are to give first to the local church. And so, you know, that was kind of an expectation of mine going into things. I thought, okay, good. He's a, he's a Christian guy, and he'll be giving. But what I was surprised by was after that, he had given 27% of all his part-time earnings last year to primarily underprivileged people. And I was struck by it. A couple things. I was convicted by it because at first I was thinking, boy, that's a foolish use of resources. And then I realized, wow, that's a great use of resources. And then I had another thought, what am I doing with my resources? What am I doing with what I've been given? And, and then I thought, oh my goodness, this is happening the week I'm preaching Nehemiah 5, which is all about Giving back to the oppressed, caring for those who are oppressed, caring for those who don't have much. I thought, whoa, maybe God is trying to send a message to me here. Maybe God has a message for all of us this morning. You know, I don't say that to bring condemnation, but it helped me remember how, how I spend my money, how I give, how I treat others in need, how I treat God's people, how I treat those who are oppressed and those in need. It reveals something it reveals who I love. It reveals what I love. How about you? Is your, 
As you're looking back on this past year, I don't say that out of condemnation. Hopefully you can look back and praise God and say, God, thank you. I've been able to give to the church. I've been able to give to your people. I've been able to give to those who are oppressed, to those who are in need, those who are poor. I've been able to do those things. And hopefully it's resulted in praise. But it may have, like me, resulted in conviction. You know, I, I, I give to our local church. I give to other ministries. And I, I give a, a, a significant percentage. But, but I was convicted. You know what? I... I, I don't have that kind of heart. I need to have that kind of heart that cares about the oppressed in a way that's sacrificial. And, and, and I think that's the example that we see in Nehemiah is, is that God's people, God's people hear the cries of the oppressed and they do something about it and they have personal sacrifice in response. That's what we see in Nehemiah chapter 5. We see the cries of the oppressed, and then we see Nehemiah responding to those cries. First of all, he hears the cries. He's not a leader who doesn't hear. He's not someone who is distant and says, you know what, that doesn't affect me personally. He hears the cries of the oppressed. He then takes personal responsibility. He hears them. He's emotionally affected. Is what we see in this passage. He gets angry, it says. He's emotionally affected. But then he's not just emotionally affected. He thinks about it. He takes counsel with himself, it says. And then not only is he emotionally affected, he takes counsel with himself, he goes and he confronts and then he does something about it. And then we see the last few verses of Nehemiah, he personally sacrifices. Boy, that's a convicting passage, isn't it? It's a convicting passage. There's, this, there's three responses from Nehemiah that we can learn from as God's people. See, Nehemiah was written for our example it was written so that we might respond in light of who, what Christ has done for us and what Christ has done in us and how God has sacrificed in our place. It's meant for us to respond and say, okay, now how do I live as God's people are supposed to live? And there's three key lessons for ourselves, how we can respond when we hear the cries of the oppressed. It's a good question for you and I. How do we, how do we respond why don't you ask yourself, how do I respond when I hear the cries of the oppressed? Maybe you're like most people and you are emotionally affected, but then after a while you forget about it. Maybe you, you post a few things on Facebook, but maybe you forget about it. So Nehemiah doesn't forget. He hears the cries of the oppressed. The first thing we, we, we learn from Nehemiah is that he hears the cries of the oppressed. We must recognize and respond to the cries of the oppressed. That's, that's the first thing we're going to learn from Nehemiah is we must recognize and respond to the cries of the press. That's really verses 1 through 5 or 6, however you look at that. Then the second thing we, we learn is that we must commit to doing what is right for the oppressed. We must commit. Now, commitment's not just in word, but it's in deed. We must be committed. We must commit to doing what's right for the oppressed. And we see that in verses 7 through, let's say, 13 of Nehemiah it is a commitment to do what is right, and then following through with that. And there's accountability and other things we're gonna see just in a few minutes. And then the third lesson that we see is that we must personally sacrifice for the oppressed. And, and that's what we see in the example of Nehemiah. He, he doesn't just tell them what to do. We see that he, he is, as well is taking part in that response. But then he gives this example, and you're wondering, what in the world is this all about? He says, here's how I've sacrificed. Here's how I've given. Here's how I'm personally sacrificing with my own example. And Nehemiah led by example in sacrificing, and I would say perhaps sacrificing in some ways greater than those he was calling to sacrifice. So we learn, the first thing we learn is that we must recognize and respond to the cries of the oppressed. We must recognize and respond to the cries of the oppressed. When you turn on the TV or when you are driving down the road and you see somebody asking for money or asking for something, how do you respond in your heart? Don't say it out loud because I think often sometimes we become callous. We can become callous to the needs of those who are oppressed. Or we can become suspicious, right? We can judge them. We can judge their motives. We can judge, well, what are they really doing? What are they really seeking? Well, I know those people, they make a lot of money. But yet, I, I, don't, I don't see that response as a, as a biblical one. I, I see wisdom in the Bible, but I also see there is compassion for people who don't deserve you see, God, all throughout the Bible, he's a God of compassion. He's a God who takes compassion on the undeserving, right? And aren't you glad God is a God who takes compassion on those who don't deserve, on those who actually hate God, on those who are trying to use God? 
God is a God who hears the cries of the oppressed, even those people who might try to use him for their own gain. And God takes mercy on them. God hears the cries of the oppressed. And so we see Nehemiah, who is prototypical or uh, a type of Christ. We see Nehemiah, he hears the cries of the oppressed, and he responds to the cries of the oppressed. He doesn't just fall on deaf ears. How about you? When you... When you see those who are oppressed, when you see those who are poor, maybe in your midst. And, and by the way, this passage is all about inside the church, if you will, inside God's people. I think it's application more broadly than that. But first and foremost, you have to ask yourself, what, what do you do when you see fellow brothers and sisters suffering? What do you do when you see poverty of your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? How do you respond? What do you do? How do you care for it? Now, I'm glad in this church that I, I can say with confidence that I, I know your deeds in a sense. I, I, I see I, as a privilege as a pastor, I get the privilege of seeing you giving. I get to see the privilege of each of your small groups. And by the way, if you're new to our church, we, we encourage you to be in a community of small groups because that's where care happens. And, and the reality is that care does happen in those small groups, um, however imperfectly it, it's, it's great to see you all are a testimony of mutual care and affection. It's good to see when there's a, a physical need, when there is a practical need, people in the group rally around it. And then there's a financial need. People say, you know what? I can give towards that or I can give towards that. Yeah, the, the church has a benevolence fund. We give a, a portion. But reality is, is that the greater portion of what's given to benevolence in the church is given through you all personally. And that's a great example and a great testimony but let's not stop with and be comfortable with where we're at. Let's say, okay, how do we respond? How do we listen to the cries of the oppressed? Not just in our group, not just in our church, which we need to start with that. But how do we generally listen to the cries of the oppressed? How are we affected? Nehemiah, he was affected. He was affected. He was affected in three ways. And he, he responded too. And we'll, we'll see that. He was, he was affected emotionally. And he responded. You know, there's, there's some conditions here in this passage that he mentions that I, I don't think we can relate to firsthand. It's harder for us to relate to firsthand because we, we live relatively comfortably. We, we don't live in an agrarian society. We don't live hand to mouth typically. Now, there are some here who do, who live paycheck to paycheck. And if you went without work for a more than a month or two, it would be very difficult. And, and that's, a, that's a portion of people in our church. We need to care for them. So what was happening here is all hands were on deck for the building, for the rebuilding project, for the rebuilding of the wall. And this is a great mission. And everybody responded. And the really cool thing is it wasn't along socioeconomic or ethnic lines. It wasn't along, you know, what's your background, what's your status, what's your job. Everybody responded. Everybody pitched in. Everybody found their place in the wall. Everybody was doing their part. That's really awesome. I think that's true of you as a church going through things, 96% of our members are serving in some way. I'm, I'm, I, I want to encourage you in that. Encourage you to continue to do that. You, you found, you're, and you're finding your place on the wall. That's good. That's awesome. That's excellent. But what they didn't realize is that there were people who were suffering. You see, a good portion of people were not nobility and were not jewelers or goldsmiths or things like that that might make a lot of income. But a good portion of the people came from the surrounding villages around and the, the men and the boys typically had left their home. And it's probably about two months in is where we're at as far as the wall building process goes. It's probably about two months in and they left their homes. Now think about that for yourself. Imagine leaving your job for two months and going to, to work on a mission field for two months with no pay. You know, a lot of you are like, well, I could do that. That'd be good. And a lot of you are like, oh my gosh, I could never do that. We wouldn't survive. And so these people were in the place where they had left their fields. If you think about that, fields don't do well without being tended. If you, I, I have a garden in the backyard. I'll actually correct that. I, I have a weed bed in the backyard right now. And because it, it wasn't tended all winter. And so it's full of weeds. And so the, the idea, I bought a bunch of tomato plants. And the idea of planting those plants is daunting because it's full of weeds. If you, if you leave something alone for a couple of months, especially in an agrarian study, if, you, if you're not sowing, if you're not weeding, if you're not reaping, and you're, you're not in that process, you're not going to make any money. And if they lived off of what they made, it's problematic that their men, their boys, were going away. And so that's why it says their wives were crying out along with them, saying, hey, it's really good that you're caring for the work of God, but by the way, we're not being cared for here. There was a problem. And the other problem was there was a famine going on. 
But on top of all that, what was really causing the problem is that when they were in hardship financially, their fellow brothers and sisters, the fellow Israelites, weren't caring for them. They weren't saying, hey, you know what, we're all in this work together. So I might have more means, you have less means, we're in this work together. So to support you working in this work of God, I'm going to actually provide for your needs. That's what should have been transpiring. Now, that part of it might have been overlooking, but it wasn't all just an overlooking. They weren't aware of the cries of their fellow brothers and sisters. And it says that actually some of them were charging interest and excessive interest, and they were kind of punishing them. They were devastated. The people who were living off the produce weren't making income. And they, they were required to sacrifice for this work on the wall. And as the taxes of the king of Persia, they didn't stop. Just like taxes today, they don't stop. But back then, there was no bankruptcy. There was, there was no way of getting out from under things. If you couldn't pay what you owed, if you couldn't pay what you owed somebody else, you couldn't pay the taxes of the king of Persia, you got either thrown in jail, you got sold into slavery. If you had a large family, if you were sold into slavery, you couldn't provide for your family. So imagine this, maybe some of you are parents, maybe some your children here. Imagine if you couldn't pay your debts and the only way out was to sell one of your kids into slavery. Because you got four, five, six kids and, and there's no way you're going to provide for your wife and kids unless one of them is sold into slavery. How horrible that would be. Or maybe you're, you're a teenager or a youth and, and you're sitting here thinking, what if I got sold into slavery? Imagine how bad that would be. Families separated. Families torn apart. Because the cries of the oppressed were being ignored. They had to mortgage their fields, it says, their vineyards, their source of income and their homes in order just to eat. And they weren't looking for a steak dinner, okay? They, they, weren't, they weren't struggling with, oh, you know what? I think we spent too much money on Starbucks this week or I think, we think we spent too much money going out this week. It wasn't that kind of wrestling that they were enduring. They were saying, hey, I, we can't even buy grain. So they're not looking for steak here. They're, we can't even buy grain because grain's the cheapest, most filling thing they had. They ate, the poor would eat a lot of grain and make a lot of bread. Why? Bread's filling. But they couldn't even buy grain. They they couldn't buy what they needed to feed their children. I, I don't know about you, but I can't imagine being in the place where I'm serving the Lord and I can't, I can't feed my own kids. You ever think about that? What about some in the community around you who are struggling paycheck to paycheck or don't have a paycheck or can't work? Or can't feed their children. Does that affect you? I think we're meant to be affected. And, and they, they cry out. They, they hear the cry. He, it's, it's, a, it's a poignant cry. Hear the cry. He says, he says our, our fellow Israelites, they're like us. They are flesh and blood like us. That We are the same flesh and blood. What they're saying is they're aware of a truth that we need to be aware of. They are made in the image of God just like we're made in the image of God. And yet they're not treating us that way. They're treating us like trash. Not only not treating us like brothers, they're not treating us like the same flesh and blood that we are. And you know what? I think that we're tempted today to look down on people sometimes who are in different circumstances, situation, or oppressed because they come from a different background or they come from a different country or they're living in an impoverished area or maybe they're in a, an inner city area or they're in a place that we think is violent or they're doing things that are wrong and we think, oh, you know what? They're somehow less worthy I think we can feel that way. I think we can, we can be tempted to look at people as subhuman or less than human, and we need to hear the cries of the oppressed. We're the same flesh and blood. We're made in God's image, the, the image of God. God created man and woman in his image, and it's always grievous, no matter how sinful, no matter how off the person is, no matter how far apart, when the image of God is oppressed. There's inherent, inherent transient value. There's, there's value in humans just because we're made in the image of God. And that's what they're crying out. We're, we're flesh and blood like them. But not only that, there are brothers. Their fellow Israelites, they're ignoring their plight. They weren't treating them with equal in value and worth. How about you? How do you treat those who are less fortunate? How do you relate to those who are less fortunate in, in the church maybe or starting here, your family in the church? 
You're seeking to help them. You're seeking to, to realize that everything that you have is a gift from God given to you by God just to steward so that you can use it for his purposes, for his people, and for his kingdom. How are you using what he's given to you? Back in that day, somebody had to pay. And, and, and we see here that it says that their children were being sold into slavery and they were being sold as slaves. And, and why that is especially awful is because these are the same people who have just been brought back, and that's what Nehemiah is saying. These have just been brought back out of slavery, out of captivity. All these people have been taken away as slaves into exile, and they came back, and then as soon as these slaves from exile come back, they are enslaving their brothers and sisters. Thank God for the rain, by the way. Don't be distracted by it. It's good. They're, they're being enslaved by their brothers and sisters. In Leviticus 25, God was clear, though, that they weren't to treat each other as slaves. Let's look at Leviticus 25, verse 39. It says, if your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as slave. He shall be with you as a higher servant, as a sojourner. He is serving with him until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants. Listen to this who I brought out of the land of Egypt, they shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but you shall fear your God. An awareness of God's rescue from slavery was meant to have an effect on them and how they lived. Does that have an effect on you? Does an awareness of your freedom from slavery affect you? Do you hear the cries of the oppressed and do you respond? The reason they weren't treating each other as slaves is because God delivers his people from slavery. God delivers his people from bondage, not to be then put in bondage. Imagine how we would respond. Imagine what things would look like if we looked for and we heard the cries of the oppressed around us. Imagine the impact on the society around us. Imagine the impact on not only this church, but on the community. Imagine the impact on the upstate. If, if every believer... Why don't you just imagine that for a moment? If every believer in Jesus Christ was aware of their own freedom from captivity because of God, that God delivered them from captivity and bondage, and if every believer said, you know what, I'm gonna hear the cries of the oppressed and I'm gonna respond and I'm gonna do something about it. Imagine what that would be like. I think it'd be transformative. Well, Nehemiah, he responds, he hears people treating these as slaves and he gets angry. Look at verse six. Look down at verse six. He gets angry. Now, most of the time, our anger is not godly. Most of the time. When I get angry at my wife and my children, and, and to my shame, I, I still do, most of the time, that is not godly. There is a kind of righteous anger, and I think that's what we see here, the kind of righteous anger that Jesus had when the temple was being defiled. We heard about a few weeks in Palm Sunday. He came in, he turns over the tables, he kicks the people out, the money changed out because they were defiling the temple. They were keeping the Gentiles from worshiping him. There is a righteous anger. There is a righteous anger that Nehemiah has in response to injustice. And what we see is that it results in him being committed in doing what is right for the oppressed. What can we learn from that? We, we can learn that we must commit. God's people must commit to doing what is right for the oppressed. And that's what he pushes God's people to do. This, this Nehemiah, this, this pre-Christ, if you will, this, this leader, he, he tells God's people, we must commit to doing what is right for the oppressed. And he calls them to account. And that's what we see in, in verses 6 through 13. He calls them to account. He calls in the priests to make sure there's no wiggle room. And, and then he makes sure the promises be kept. But notice he doesn't just get upset. He says, I got very angry. Are you, are you very affected by injustice? You see, God is affected by injustice. God is angry at injustice. Did you know that? That's a good thing, right? That's a very, very good thing. Good for us. It's good that God is angry at injustice because we know that God will not allow justice, injustice to go unpunished. We can have hope in that. That's an anchor for us. We can be sure that, that God gets angry when people are oppressed, that he does not 
turn a blind eye, that he's not ambivalent to oppression. How do we respond? Nehemiah gets angry, but he didn't just get upset. He didn't just protest and write angry Facebook posts. Obviously, Facebook didn't exist back then, but he's not just tweeting angry things. I can't believe you people. I can't believe it. All these people doing injustice. And that's really kind of how meaningless some of our protests are on social media too, right? It's just empty, angry rants. That's not what we see here, though. We don't see empty, angry rants, which really aren't productive, We see Nehemiah getting angry, and he stops. What's the very next thing he says? And I took counsel with myself. I paused. I got got righteously angry, but then I took counsel. I thought about it. I thought, okay, wait a minute. Let me think through what would God have me do. This righteous anger I'm experiencing is meant to result in me thinking through what should I do and then responding and doing something. If, If you find yourself provoked by oppression or injustice that you see in the world or around you or in the church or whatever, it's meant to affect you. But don't, don't just let it be empty anger. Let, let it turn into, okay, you know what? I need to think and stop. Okay, I take counsel. Take counsel with God's word in yourself and say, okay, how would God have me to respond? If I'm being affected, then most likely I need to respond in some way. Now you can't go and you can't go to every place that needs work. You can't go to every place that needs help. You can't give to absolutely everything, but you can do something. You can respond in some way. Think through it. Are you thinking through? Maybe you've been righteously angry about oppression. If not, you need to be, but if you are, how will you respond? Will you think through things? Will you take counsel with yourself? But then he just take, take counsel and think about it, and he thought about a bunch of good ideas. He actually took action and confronted and was part of the solution, tried to fix things. He goes and he confronts He was committed to doing what was right. You know, it's hard to imagine sometimes for us what it's like not to have. But there are lots of people around us who don't have to imagine that. You know, when I was growing up, I, I, I thought, I thought that we didn't have very much. And we really didn't in, in, in the American context. We, we really didn't have very much growing up. We, but we always ate. Now, sometimes we, we, you know, we ate things that were cheap or we, you know, we, we, I didn't realize why we eat so many beans and rice or why there was always rice with our chili and not much meat. You know, it was, it was because we didn't have a lot and that's okay, and, but we always had something to eat. We never went without. I never went hungry. I can't rem- remember a night doing that, even if it was a lot of pasta. But there are many who don't have things. I remember the very first time I went home with a classmate in kindergarten and, and I, I, I'd never experienced poverty really firsthand. I was, I was five years old. I went to home to his house. And I, and, I, and I was surprised. I couldn't figure out. He didn't have a bed. He didn't have a dresser. He didn't have any furniture in his room. His room was just this bare, empty room. I thought, did, you, did he just move in? No, he, they'd been there for years. It wasn't because, you know, they just moved. It was because they didn't have anything. He came from a different section of town that was very impoverished. They didn't have much. They, they had a folding table, a few makeshift chairs in their, in their dining room, and, and I think they had some plastic chairs in the living room. That was pretty much it. And I remember at a very young age being surprised, how, how, why is it like that? You know, now maybe you're tempted when you first have that thought to think, oh, well, it's their own fault. But let me ask you, your own oppression your own slavery, your own bondage? Wasn't it your own fault? Right? So what? Maybe it is. Maybe it's not, though. Don't make assumptions about people. You don't know. Don't be tempted to think, well, maybe it's their own thought. So what if it is? Who cares? Now, in most cases, though, you, you know what? Most people don't want to live like that. I don't know anybody who loves living in poverty. I don't know anybody who likes being oppressed. I don't know anybody who loves not having a home. I don't know anybody who likes going hungry. Do you, do you know somebody who really likes that and wants things to be that way? They were oppressed. They were still doing the work. They were working hard, rebuilding and restoring, but they didn't have anything. They had to mortgage things. They had to borrow money just to pay their taxes. They, I couldn't make ends meet, and yet their brothers and sisters, the people around them, 
They were just kind of ignoring. Nehemiah didn't ignore. He got angry. He thought about it. He responded. He confronts them. He says, what you're doing is not right. It's not right. We must be committed to doing what's right for the oppressed. What you're doing is not right. It may not be intentional. It may not be on purpose. You may not mean to be callous to the cries of the oppressed. You may not mean to ignore those who have less. You may not be willfully, intentionally, but it's not right, is what he's saying. What you're doing is not right. Sometimes God's people need to be confronted with how they're perpetuating the status quo and how they're acting like the world around them and how they treat each other. After all, the Israelites were just doing what everybody else did, right? They were just charging interest. Isn't it okay to charge interest? Well, actually, the Bible would say in Ezekiel and Leviticus 25, both in Ezekiel 18, that no, God's people shouldn't charge each other interest, at least. It's not wrong to make a profit, but it says if your brother is in need, if you have a poor brother and they're in need, don't, don't add to their burden, and yet these people were adding to their burden. Why? Because they were just doing what was normal in society. How about you? What are you doing? How are your normal practices that are totally acceptable in society, how do they reflect God? How do they reflect his heart? How do they reflect the fact that he goes and gets us out of captivity? Well, he confronts them, and they were pretty uncomfortable. How do I know they're uncomfortable? Because they were silent. You know, sometimes on Sunday morning, maybe a little bit right now, things are a little quiet in here, right? We're confronted by God's word. We don't know what to say. This is they were silent, and they couldn't find a word to say. People don't know what to say when they were confronted. Nehemiah had some suggestions, right? Look at verses 9 to 11. He wasn't silent. He had some suggestions. He says, the thing you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our Lord to, put, to prevent the taunts of the nations? Oh, look at that. Ought you not walk in the fear of our God? What was he saying? Aren't you aware of God and his mercy and his care and his kindness and his compassion aren't you aware of God's goodness to bring you out of captivity aren't you aware of all that God has done aren't you aware that God has drawn us and put us into his promised place aren't you aware that God has put us here for such a time as this aren't you aware that God is for you and should you not walk in the fear of God because of that with other people and then look what else he says two things ought you not to walk in the fear of our God and then it's because of their witness. He says, to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies. What is, it, what is he saying? You know, the Israelites have been given this great privilege, this great responsibility. God's people had this great privilege of having God's very words. They were the only people who had God's inerrant, inspired words given to them. They had God revealing himself to them. They had the wonderful privilege of knowing who God is and who they were and of God's salvation and God's mercy and God's kindness. What a privilege. But with that privilege came the responsibility of communicating that message to the nations around them. They were to be a light to the nations around them. Through them, all the nations of the earth were to be blessed. That applies to us as well, right? Don't we have an awesome privilege of having God's word, his revealed nature, of having knowing who God is and, and knowing who not only God is, but who we are in him. And then we've been given this great message so that we can be what? It's not different here. In Matthew 28, I, I mean, in Matthew he says, go and be witnesses to the nations around you. It's a motivator. How we act, what we do in relationship to other people, it speaks of our Christian witness. And he says, Don't, aren't you aware of God and walk in the fear of him and prevent the taunts of nations? Prevent the taunts of the people who would say, oh, you know, Christians, you talk a good game, but then you don't actually do anything about injustice. You know, you say you believe in mercy, but I don't see you showing it. And there's people who would say that. And he says, aren't don't you want your gospel witness to communicate something? Don't you want to be able to communicate the mercy and kindness and compassion of God? How does your witness reflect that is what he's asking them. And he's calling them to remember their witness. We've got a responsibility of declaring God through our walk and our actions. Through walking in a way that fears, that honors God, that, that shows him reverence and, and it proclaims him to a world that might be tempted to taunt. Let's not give them cause to taunt. Why 
Well, we, we see in Leviticus 25 and Ezekiel 18, God condemns the practice of charging excessive interest. But not only did Nehemiah call them to repent, he, he responded to conviction himself. And then he, probably inadvertently, he wasn't thinking through things willfully because he was, he was provoked by the injustice he saw, but, but he also started reflecting, okay, how am I a part of this? Yes, he was calling them to respond, but he also was thinking about himself. And look down, and I think it was in nine, verse nine and 10 there. Yeah, verse 10, moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending the money and grain. He says, let us abandon this exacting of interest. Let's stop using other people for our gain. Let's stop charging people. Let's, let's stop treating people like they were put, around, put there for our benefit. Let's stop trying to make money off of other people's hardship. If a fellow brother and sister in the church needs something, let's, let's, let's ask ourselves if we can be a part of supplying that need. If we can't afford to give something to them, we need to loan something to them so they can make ends meet, well, let's, let's do that, but let's not charge interest. Let's be different than the world around us. That idea would have been a difficult one, right? It's a difficult idea, isn't it? Man, it's provoking. Nehemiah's convicting. I was so convicted by Nehemiah and then I did the taxes of this other guy and then I was more convicted. But Nehemiah goes further. He doesn't just say, hey, don't stop, stop lending and we're gonna stop lending at interest and we're gonna stop charging and we're gonna stop making money off the backs of others um, unrighteously. He, he goes even further, looks at him. He says, look down in verse 11. He says, return to them this very day. Okay, so maybe you've been convicted today. Here's what he's saying to them. Maybe you've been convicted. Maybe my words have had an effect. Maybe you are stirred in your heart that there's something in your heart that's not right that needs a change. And he says, return to them this very day. Don't sit on it. When God speaks, when God convicts, don't sit on it. Return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, the percentage of money, grain, wine, oil that you've been exacting from them. It's not just forgiving the debts. It's giving back to them. And then it's, 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 it's giving everything back to them and the percentage of everything we've gotten for them. It is being a blessing and showing mercy and kindness and compassion because God's shown us those things. And then, and then look at verse 12. Look down your Bibles in verse 12. He calls them to respond. He, he doesn't wait. When there is conviction from God, don't wait. Because the true test of whether you really are responding to conviction is in your actions and what you are doing in response. It's very good for you to say, yes, we are wrong, and Lord, we repent, and God, please forgive me, but then sit down and think and say, okay, God, now, how do I need to respond? What do I need to do? How am I gonna be affected by this? What am I gonna do differently in response? And the people, they committed. Look at verse 12, it says, we will restore, but you notice something else? It wasn't just restoration, we will restore these. And then it says something else shocking. We will require nothing from them. We won't just restore everything we've taken from them. We are going to no longer have a debt against them. We're going to cancel out their debts against us that they had. We're going we're to require nothing from them. And it's wonderful. They didn't fight him on it. They responded to his God-focused appeal immediately. They, they were committed to restore everything to them and requiring nothing. When God calls us to respond, when he convicts you through his word that of how you are spending your money, and by the way, the, the, the thing that most pastors hate to preach on, at least, at least I, no one here likes to preach on, is money because, it, because people get uncomfortable with it because it's uncomfortable. You know why? Because it reveals our hearts. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, I think is something that Jesus said. I don't think it, I know it. It reveals our hearts. It makes us uncomfortable. But I pray we're equally quick to respond to God, to give, to require nothing in return, to, to seek justice for those who are experiencing injustice, to, to help the oppressed, to, to give to God's people. I urge you not, not to wait. And said, then, then, then do what Nehemiah did. You see what Nehemiah does right after this? He's like, okay, good. I'm glad you promised. I'm glad God convicted you. I'm glad you say you were going to respond. I'm glad you're going to do all these things. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to hold you accountable to it. Look what he does. He does something pretty bold here. He, he calls the priests in. 
He says, okay, fine. I understand. Thank you. That's really good that you're convicted. It's really good that you're committed to doing these things. You're promised doing things. Now, you know what we're going to do? The priests are going to be a witness that you said these things, and they're going to hold you accountable. They're going to make sure you do what you said you're going to do. Now, now, I don't want to be everybody's accountability partner. It's not what this is all about. Please don't. But he set up, he wisely set up a system to make sure that they as a people did what they had promised. And then they took it really seriously. They make a solemn vow before God. I don't know if, but the language that they use, I don't know if you're aware of that, but the language that they use, it is covenantal in nature here. And they make a solemn vow before God. They covenant before God. And then he, he has this prophetic kind of demonstration. He has this cloak and he shakes it out and he says, so may be done to you if you do not do what's being committed. It's a covenant vow he's committing them to. He's calling down an oath. He says, God will shake you out if you don't respond to him. That's not normally the way to get people on your side, by the way. You know, often when a leader challenges people about where they're spending, you're treading on thin ice. I know I am today, but I trust this is God's word. Because often people's hearts reveal, are revealed by, by where they spend. And you know what? A lot of us need to change and that's a good thing. Notice how people respond, though. They, they respond in a beautiful way. Look, look, look down in your Bibles. Look, look down in, um, let's see here. In verse, end of verse 13. It says, and all the assembly said amen and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. And all the people said amen. Why? Because their response was to worship God. Oh, you know what? We've been convicted and we want to worship God. We want to praise him. And you know, see the worship of God, their praise of God, it was then carried out in the response. And I think that's instructive for us as well. And we, we shouldn't just respond and just do the right thing as somehow that's going to earn favor before God. No, they actually knew that they were worshiping God and their worship of God, it resulted in their actions for God. Their actions were an overflow of their worship and reverence for God. And the same is to be true for us. When, when God is convicted of us in response to, to him, we worship God with our whole lives. Imagine here, what would happen if every person here, if every Christian said, God, I want to worship you and I want to live in response. I, I want to I live in a way that's merciful. I want to live in a way that's compassionate, that's just. I want to live in a way that defends the needy, the poor, that upholds their cause, that listens to their cry and responds. Well, we see a, a third and final lesson here is from Nehemiah himself. We see that we must personally respond. We must personally sacrifice for the oppressed. Nehemiah wasn't just calling them to do something he wasn't personally willing to do, okay? He had to give up something that was rightfully his as the governor, we find out in this chapter, he was appointed as the governor of that whole area. He was in charge. But part of how he got paid as the governor was from the people. He had, they had dues they had to pay to the governor. He had taxes that he personally received. And yet, Nehemiah is saying, I didn't get any of that. I wasn't paid. I, I, I gave up all of that. And not only that, I gave up my reimbursement for all of my expenses. And by the way, the expenses for a governor back then were pretty huge. He had at least 150, not including his own household, at least 150 people who he fed every day. Imagine that. We had a church potluck a month ago, right? Imagine that you paid for that out of pocket every day. That'd be a little much, right? You know, sometimes at a church potluck, we're like, you know, gosh, I have to bring so much. <laughs> Nehemiah, Nehemiah is, he's pouring out his heart to God and he's this is kind of his private journal entry that now is exposed. I don't think he knew that this was going to be published. And look down in there from verse 14 to 19. He says, I, I, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. I didn't, I didn't take the allowance I was due. And neither did anybody in my family. All the other governors, they, they laid heavy burdens and, and they had a, a daily ration of 40 shekels of silver, but but I didn't do that. He says, there were at my table 150 men, Jews, and officials besides those who came from the nations that were all around us. So he had probably 
closer to 200 people he's feeding every day from his own pocket. That's a pretty big sacrifice, right? And he says, what was prepared, prepared at my expense was one ox. Now think about it. An ox feeds a lot of people, right? An ox, you know, I remember once we went in with somebody and we bought like a quarter of a side of beef and that lasted for a long time. He's like, okay, every day we, we slaughter an ox every day and six choice sheep and then birds and then every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. And wine was expensive then just like it is now. And he says in the very end, yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on the people. He was denying himself 40 shekels of silver a day for 12 years and I was tallying it up and it's like 175,000 shekels of silver of his personal loss. That would be a fortune for us. Millions and millions of dollars. And yet it says, he did, not only that, he didn't just give up things, but he kept working. Look in, in verse 16, it says, I also persevered in the work on this wall. We acquired no land. All my servants were gathered there for work. He kept working and he was personally sacrificing for God's purposes, for God's people, for the sake of the restoration process. Why? Because he knew how significant that God's restoration work was. He knew that it was far more significant than his own comfort, his own pleasure, his own indulgence. You know, I, in our church, we, we want to help those who are economically challenged. We want to personally sacrifice. We want to we give benevolence to people, and we do that through your giving. And we also give to other churches, other places through your giving. And if you're here and you need something to eat, we've got a small food pantry in, that, in the back there in the room, and there's a food drive out in the lobby for that that you can take advantage of. We also want all of our members to be on, on the lookout for and care for and provide for those in our midst who are in real need and then not stop there. You know, maybe, maybe there's people who, who need a ride or practically need care in some way. But then we say, okay, well, once we've exhausted that, I think there's still work to be done. We, we partner together with a ministry called Piedmont Women's Center. They are a wonderful God-word, God-focused, gospel-preaching ministry. They, they minister to women who are considering abortion often because they feel like it's the only way out economically it's the only way out from where they're at and now they they are confused they're wrong they might be thinking sinfully but they are rescued and restored and brought to god so we want to partner and give with ministries like piedmont women's center and house rescue babies from abortion so we do things like a bottle a baby bottle drive. We drive and, and raise money for them. We give a portion of our church's income towards them. And I want to see that grow. So we want you to give more too for that. And then we also have, there's a brick out in the lobby. I think there's some forms out there for it. And um, they're asking, hey guys, could you give the equivalent of buying six more bricks in these bricks in the walkway? They're going to be put there with our, our church's logo. And then if you buy one, you get your logo on there too. And it's just a practical way of saying tangibly, I'm, I want to commit to giving towards them. And there's a memorial for that. And then it helps them directly. And I think there's six more, by the way. If you want to buy a brick, please do. But we also want to go, and we want to give to work of people in the community around us, like Miracle Hill. If you're looking and you're thinking, I don't know who's oppressed. Well, Piedmont Women's Center. There, there's some oppressed people there. You can volunteer, you can give. There's some people who are oppressed that, that are affiliated with Miracle Hill. Miracle Hill does a bunch of different things. We give a portion of our income as a church to them. And I'd encourage you to be thinking, if you're looking for ways to care for the needy, the poor, and the upstate. They have homeless shelters. They've got women's shelters, boys' shelters, homes for life, a children's home, foster care, recruitment, and placement. There's a lot of things, a lot of ways where you can help respond to those who are oppressed. They're dedicated to providing service to individuals and families and food and shelter, clothing, counseling, development, and addiction recovery care. The youth in the past have participated in, in, in serving in Shepherd's Gate and we love the ladies there. God loves the oppressed. Maybe you're looking for an opportunity to serve outside of the church. I want you to think about that. You know, as a church, that's why we give towards another church plant across town who serves primarily underprivileged people who are challenged economically. And I don't know if they'll ever be off the place where they need help as far as a church plant goes. The church plant might, you know, I think Will brought us shared in that little video we shared last, I think it was last week, that it's a long runway. There's a, this church is gonna need a lot of help financially for a while, and so that's why we give a portion of our income to that. We help host a community block party, and, and we wanna do that in the future. 
you don't have to go far. I'm just giving you some ideas here. You don't have to go far. As our, our population age, there's a lot of elderly people in your own neighborhood who could use Christ's care through you. Or they're impoverished, they're struggling, you don't know it. Well, there's a, there's a fourth and final thing before we close here that, that we can learn. I, I didn't mention at the beginning because it's not really something for us to do. There's a, there's a fourth and final thing to learn from this passage. You see, Nehemiah is a book that's really all about looking for the good news of the gospel, looking for the one who would truly save. Nehemiah is not perfect. He is not the perfect savior. He's not the perfect leader. He is not the perfect one who rescues from oppression, who delivers, who personally sacrifices. But there is someone else. And it, leads with, it ends with this, this remember prayer. Look in, look in verse 19 of Nehemiah 5. It says, remember for my good, O God, all that I've done for this people. He's kind of pouring out his heart. Will, God, will you remember all the good I've done? But there's something we can learn from that. You see, Nehemiah is a, a type of Christ. And we interpret the book of Nehemiah in light of the cross, in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we see that there is actually a better Nehemiah who sacrificed. And then we wonder, like, like Nehemiah, God, will you remember me for my, for my good? All that I've done? Because ultimately, that's why we do things. That's why we give up. That's why we sacrifice. That's why we worship. That's why we make sacrifices personally. Is because we trust, we hope, we pray that God will remember us. But you know what? We can be confident for one reason, that God will answer our prayer. It's because the last lesson we need to learn is that God will remember us because Christ was oppressed for us. We can be confident that God will remember us when we pray like that because Christ was oppressed for us. You know, I was reminded at the beginning of how, how important it is to think about how I spend my money through doing this guy's taxes to remember Nehemiah ends with a prayer to remember. You can be confident. God will remember us for good. Why? Because he remembers Jesus in our place. That's really good news, isn't it? We have a better Nehemiah who not only calls us to respond, who calls us to worship, and who made the ultimate personal sacrifice, who has given up everything, all of his riches, denied himself all of his privileges, said, I will not require from people because I want to come and deliver the oppressed. And now whenever God thinks of you, if you have placed your hope, your faith in Jesus Christ, here is something astounding. Instead of God remembering all of your sins, he remembers them no more. You know what he remembers instead? He remembers the better Nehemiah, Jesus, in all that he did for us. See, ultimately, Nehemiah's prayer, in one sense, was fulfilled in Christ. God remembers all that Jesus has done for us when he thinks of us. That's pretty amazing. You see, we could never do enough. We could never be good enough. We could never earn God's favor. We could never be righteous enough. We could never fight for injustice. We could never do all the things we're supposed to do enough for God to remember us on our own because all of our works are, are shot through with sin. But yet there is one who did not sin in any way, who every, whose every work was completely righteous all the time. And when he prayed, God, remember me instead of them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Now, God forgives you and I. He remembers Jesus in our place. That's wonderful. You ever wonder why it says that, you know, when, when we pray and ask for forgiveness, God forgets our sins. Well, it's not forgetting the sight that God's some senile, clueless old man. It's that God chooses to not remember our sins and instead he chooses to remember everything that Jesus did in our stead. Jesus is the better Nehemiah who God remembers in, in our place. In Christ, he delivers us. and we're no longer enslaved, he sets us free if the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. You're not in long, any longer in bondage to sin because of Jesus. Because Jesus gave up everything, we're free. God helps the weak. He's a father to the fatherless. He's a defender of the weak. Nehemiah's example is to point us to the gospel, point us to Jesus. Jesus is our ultimate leader, our ultimate redeemer, our ultimate rescuer, our ultimate sacrificer, the ultimate one who gives up himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
And you know what happens? He enters into the pains that they pressed. That's what Jesus did. He enters into our pain. He heard our cry. Isn't that good news? He heard our cry. We didn't deserve it. We don't deserve it. God heard our cry. He delivered us. He heard our cry. He responded. He was angry and he did something about it. He personally sacrificed. His stripes heal us. He was bruised for our iniquities, pierced for us. He was oppressed. In, in Matthew 27, we see a picture of Jesus. He ultimately was denied justice for us so that we don't receive justice, we receive mercy. He stepped in and helped. He freed us up so we can follow him, love him, and do the work he intended to us to spread his image, to proclaim his name through our actions. Amen? Let's pray. Father,